They said that there was a body down the hill. And right on the front page is about this little girl being found up in Washington Heights. We thought we were going to solve it really quick. We didn't want the baby to be called the cooler kid. So Sergeant Ma said, baby hope. This is episode two of Break in the Case, a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Our reporter is Edward Conlon, a former detective who worked in the South Bronx. A warning, this story contains graphic content and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Episode 2, Baby Hope. We are them. On July 23, 1991, the body of a little girl was found in a cooler on the side of a highway in Upper Manhattan. She was maybe four years old. The cause of death was homicidal asphyxiation. Three days into an intensive investigation that drew national attention, the only thing the detectives had was a name, Baby Hope, and they'd made that up themselves. But the made-up name was more important than you'd think. Joe Resnick was a lieutenant at the time, the squad commander in the 3-4. His detectives had the case. He explains why a sense of connection is so important, even if it's improvised. I have this phrase, we are them. We are those victims. We are that little girl. We are all homicide victims because they have really no one else to turn to. And a lot of times you'll find yourself looking down at a corpse and you're trying to figure out like what happened here. And that's what basically we are them is all about. You're putting yourself in their shoes and trying to come up with an answer. 99% of the time, if you can come up with a motive, you can come up with who did it. Here's the shortest way to explain how police investigations work. Cases break because somebody finds something or because somebody says something. All the physical stuff in an investigation, a weapon, fingerprints, financial records, video, is known as evidence. Physical fact, scientific fact. All the types of statements introduced in court observations by cops and civilians, witness IDs, expert opinions, confessions, is called testimony. You have your science and you have your story. Some cases are pretty much all science, and some are mostly story. But usually there's a combination of the two. With the Baby Hope case, detectives were counting on a story to set them in the right direction. Still, they had evidence to work with, the body was found tied up in a plastic bag in a cooler, covered by a cloth and soda cans, a little hair twist for a ponytail with yellow plastic balls. All of it was examined. It wasn't exactly surprising that they couldn't find out who bought a dozen cans of Coca-Cola somewhere in New York City sometime in the summer of 1991, but they had to try and they gave the distributor 6,000 flyers for the drivers to pass around on their routes. Here's Joe Neenan, the case detective from the 3-4 squad. We knew when the cooler was made, but unless a warranty card goes back, they don't have any history of where the cooler went, who, who bought it. They didn't expect to get much from DNA, which had first been used in a criminal prosecution in the United States only four years before. There was no such thing as a DNA database. And then there was the sketch to consider, or to reconsider. When I was a detective, I never asked to use a sketch artist. 
For it to be useful, you need a perp with a distinctive look and a witness who not only has a strong visual memory, but the ability to articulate what makes that perp distinctive. But the sketch in this case was created through scientific methods. Still, there was something off-putting about the gaunt cheeks, the eerie stare. Should that matter? They weren't trying to sell baby food. This was a murdered child who'd suffered long before she died. But Resnick didn't want people to look away. He really was running a kind of ad campaign. Besides, a forensic anthropologist had examined her bones and teeth, and she estimated that baby Hope was between three and five. The girl in the sketch looked older. Resnick asked for another version and another. Anytime we got a new sketch, we'd send it out. And after a while, we put all the sketches on one wanted poster, because if one face didn't click, maybe the next face would click. There was a company up in Canada. They said, if you could send us her skull, we will give you a computer image of what we believe that child looked like. The image was of a chubby-cheeked little girl. That one they could have used to sell baby food. We sort of discarded it. We always pictured Baby Hope as a very thin, fragile little girl. Remember, the medical examiner, the ME, estimated that she was 25 to 30 pounds. I gotta admit, the ME, she says three to five years old. And we questioned that because we thought it'd be younger. As a matter of fact, when they told us the height, which is somewhere around 35 inches or something, I was gonna go out and purchase a doll, because at that time they had dolls that were like 36 inches tall. And just to like impress or not impress on the, the public, but really beg them for any type of information. Here's Detective Joe Neenan again. He had us going to the schools and talking to the principals. We tried asking other students, do you see everyone that you saw here last year? Is there any friends that you're missing? We were handing out flyers everywhere. Bilingual flyers in English and Spanish to store owners in the neighborhood and the toll takers on the highway. To parochial schools as well as public. They went into hospitals talking to the doctors and nurses in the ERs and pediatric units. They had sit-downs with the child welfare authorities, making sure the supervisors had the sketch that the caseworkers were all interviewed. And it worked to the extent that people kept thinking about it, kept calling. A lot of times you get somebody on the phone and whoever was on the phone would shout out, shh, we got something here. And then he'd be talking to the person, taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. And as soon as he hung up the phone, he'd say something like, let's go. And then we go check on an apartment and we find out it had absolutely nothing to do with Baby Hope. Uh, but in fact, somebody called us knowing that we would go and check on this one particular family whether it involved child abuse, child neglect, child maltreatment, they knew we, we would respond. And the well-wishers and the rest of the people that just would, you know, each day would call and just hope that we would solve this thing on behalf of that little kid. An informant told the detectives that Baby Hope's family actually lived in the neighborhood. One of them was going around with a picture of a guy saying this was the killer. The family wanted him alive, and they were willing to pay 15 grand to get their hands on him. The squad went all out chasing the lead, but it turned out to be a lie. There was a feud between drug dealers. One crew wanted the guy in the picture found so they could kill him. It got depressing after a while. Most of the leads were local, which made sense. A lot of New Yorkers couldn't have picked out Inwood Hill Park on a map. But calls came in from outside of the city, even outside of the country. 
they were active investigations of confirmed missing children. Some of the cases were as well known in their own hometowns as Aton Pates was here. His was the first picture of a missing child put on a milk carton. In Texas and Kentucky and Toronto, they had stories without endings. In the 3-4, they only had the ending. Could one of them be a match? One by one, the cases were ruled out through fingerprints, blood type, hair color. It must have hurt to hear that. It also hurt to be reminded that there was a whole world of lost children out there with families who had dedicated their lives to finding them. Didn't Baby Hope have a family? Didn't she have anyone who cared she was gone? A woman from the East Village called to say that there were people living in a graffiti-covered school bus that was parked on 6th Street between Avenues A and B. A little girl was living with them, three or four years old, and she looked like the sketch. Another thing, the bus disappeared a couple of days after the Baby Hope story broke. A detective went downtown to check things out. He found someone who knew the people on the bus. Apparently, one of them had been talking with the U.S. attorney about, quote, something with children. That had to be something, right? That would have been my first thought. My second thought would have been, why do the feds know something I don't know? Are they trying to steal my case? But when Neenan tracked down the U.S. attorney, he found that they weren't working on the Baby Hope case. In a genuinely bizarre turn of events, the man on the bus in the East Village was helping the U.S. attorney on the Aton Pates case, which was very much an active investigation at the time. Another door slammed shut. Neenan had been working the Baby Hope case for 17 days by then. He was exhausted. All of them were. The Pates investigation was in its 12th year. I wondered what Neenan thought about that at the time. I asked him, but he didn't remember the lead. Once it went dead, he didn't think about it anymore. There was too much to do. We'll be right back after the break. Detectives still wanted to talk to Judy Brown. And since Judy said that she saw the couple on the side of the highway on Sunday, July 14th, Resnick shut the road down exactly three weeks later to hand out leaflets to drivers. When you're doing homicides or whatever, you always try to do a 24-hour canvas, meaning that you're back there exactly 24 hours later. And then you try to get back there exactly seven days later. Because people are, are, are creatures of habit, basically. So if a person walks a dog at a certain time every day, you're gonna find that person out there the following day or even a week from then. And then there's people that will only pass by on that particular spot on let's say a Sunday morning or a Monday morning. So you try to have people out there during those times. By the end of the summer, there was only one new piece of information. The medical examiner had confirmed that baby Hope had been sexually assaulted. No penetration, but semen was found in her rectum. Detectives had guessed as much but knowing is different. They had to keep telling the story, and the media was glad to help. This is from a TV news story, WPIX, a month later. Tonight, police do have some new ammunition and new hope in solving the mystery of this little child that they call Little Baby Hope. 
Police now believe that this is what Baby Hope must have looked like before she was brutally murdered this past June. They showed the first sketch and then five others. At first, police thought she looked like this, her large baby teeth the biggest clue. Then, working with the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the picture was softened to dramatize what we know for sure. Baby Hope is a light-skinned Hispanic child, four to five years old, most likely from Manhattan or the Bronx. This case has become so mystifying that even the FBI is jumping in with both feet. We've learned that a portion of the child's body will soon be sent to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, where experts will painstakingly reconstruct her face bit by bit. For if we don't know who she is, it will be almost impossible to find her killer. This search for the child's killer now reaching an almost obsessive nature, led by two detectives with almost 45 years of experience between them. This is Joe Neenan. It touches me very deeply, you know, being, being, you know, being my, with my own children. You know, it's, it makes you look at your kids a little differently. And here's Jerry Giorgio. We oftentimes like to tell people that we try to remain aloof or detached, but you just can't help but get emotionally involved in this type of a case. The horrible reality, since no one has reported a child like this missing. The more media attention they got, the more tips came in. If you can help, call the detectives at 927 -08. None of the tips had gotten them anywhere, but they had to keep trying. To repeat the same process over and over while expecting different results is how some people define insanity. But a good detective is like a bad gambler sometimes, always doubling down. Good evening from Washington. It's Friday, November 15th, and I'm John Walsh. And when they got a chance to get the case on one of the most popular shows in the country, they didn't hesitate. And then whose idea was it to put it on America's Most Wanted? It's probably Resnick, I would think, or maybe Jerry. I know Jerry was very disappointed because he was on a cruise when I was on America's Most Wanted with it. The America's Most Wanted episode aired in November 1991. Police have no idea who she is, but they're calling her Baby Hope because they hope someone, someone can help identify her and find her killer. Tonight, their only hope is you. They showed the sketch, not the original, but one of the more recent ones Resnick ordered up. She looks younger, more ordinary, a little surprised. From there, Neenan walks the camera crew through the crime scene. As you can see, it's uh, quite a steep embankment. Just like in the first press conference, Joe Resnick wanted people to see the evidence. He wore gloves to show the little ponytail holder and the cords that tied up the body. This is the rope that was used to bond the little girl. It's made up of two distinct different types of string, one being a nylon type, and the other one appears to be a Venetian blind cord. The ropes are rough looking and there are multiple strands as if she was tied and retied over and over. It wasn't as if she could get away at that point. Seeing the cords made me picture what happened to Baby Hope, just like Resnick intended. Neenan still wanted the woman from Westchester to call back. What is your best clue so far? There's a female caller by the name of Judy Brown. Unfortunately, she didn't give us a number that we could reach her at. Uh, she observed uh, a male and a female walking southbound on the Henry Hudson Parkway carrying a cooler. We would very much like to speak to her again. And should she really be called Baby Hope when this seems to be a hopeless case? I think more so. I think Baby Hope is very appropriate because I don't think anybody who's had any, any part of the investigation will give up hope on this child. And why not? It's, uh, she's an innocent child. She's, uh, there's nothing that she could have done in her lifetime to deserve what happened to her. 
Someone out there knows who this child is. Someone must know something. Make that call. Don't be afraid. You can remain anonymous. Millions of people watched. The tips, unfortunately, you know, they included uh, child pornography from other states. People call us as far as away from California, told us about there's been a kid missing for several years. A lot of them we could rule out right away because now we had a sort of a definite age of the little girl. There were two leads, significant leads, that did emerge from child pornography. A detective from Manhattan North Homicide was working on an unrelated murder in Harlem when he had a conversation with a man who ran a photography business. A customer had brought in a roll of film for him to develop. The photo guy kept copies and he showed them to the detective. One of the photos shows an adult man committing a crime against a little girl. The report describes what's happening in detail, but I won't. There was a receipt with a name, let's call him Mejia, but no address. Apparently the girl in the photos resembled the sketch of Baby Hope, and the face of the adult male was recognizable. It would have been great if Mejia was connected to the case, but he needed to be locked up anyway. This is the end of December. Next couple of weeks, the detective follows up. Photo guy hasn't seen Mejia, but his friend thinks he knows him. And then the friend shows the picture to his cousin, who thinks it looks like his neighbor in the Bronx. I'll stop there for a second. We're in mid-January 1992. The other child pornography lead was turning into something serious. At one point in the investigation, there were some photos that were sent over to us from Route 46 over in New Jersey. And someone had just found these pictures. And horrible is like is an understatement as far as what these things depicted. He showed me one of the pictures. I wish he hadn't. One or two of the photos gave us an opportunity to try to figure out where the pictures were taken. And with the help of Jersey PD, Jersey State Police, we narrowed it down to one hotel. The people that found the pictures, they honestly thought that Baby Hope was this girl, and whoever did that to her ended up killing her, dumping the body in New York, thinking that we were never connected to. And so the people that found it, they're very optimistic that this would in fact be Baby Hope. They had good reason to be optimistic. Remember this clip? It was from earlier in the fall. This case has become so mystifying that even the FBI is jumping in with both feet. The pictures, five Polaroids, had actually been discovered in Bergen County in June, the month before Baby Hope was found. Someone walking on the side of the road came across them in a shopping bag and gave them to police. The face of the adult can't be seen. In the fall, police in New Jersey reached out to the NYPD. Could the cases be linked? According to the FBI and the Smithsonian, every feature that could be compared was a match. There were no identifiable discrepancies between the two. Joe Neenan believed it was the break he'd been waiting for. I did go down to Washington a couple of times. Uh, we went down to the FBI headquarters uh, with an investigator from Bergen County. They, they, they sent the photos down there and they thought this was baby hope. On January 15, 1992, the Bergen County prosecutor announced that the girl in the Polaroids was Baby Hope. There was a New York Times story the next day. Resnick is quoted, he doesn't sound convinced. If it is in fact a little girl, then it's a very big break for us, he says. The certainty wasn't at 100%. First of all, there was a difference in the age. Like people we would show that picture to said, no, no, that's like an eight or a nine-year-old girl. And I believe she ended up being 
that old. As a matter of fact, she may have been older than that, like 11 years old, when we subsequently identified her. Some of the pictures were released, and the mother recognized the daughter, and that wasn't the girl. She, she was still alive. And then we were so grateful that we were able to find out who that perverted perp was. Uh, unfortunately, it was our grandfather. Step-grandfather, in fact. In New Jersey, they closed their case. In a 3-4, they were back to square one. The other detective's lead petered out with the neighborhood in the Bronx. That ended the child pornography leads. But at least they didn't have to look at those pictures anymore. From the summer of 1991 through the new year, Joan Enan and Jerry Giorgio worked exclusively on the Baby Hope case. The amount of homicides that came into that precinct, it was very unusual for Joe Resnick to say, just work on this. You work with Jerry on this. We didn't have a big squad up there either. (laughs) We had maybe six guys in the team. Tough, tough, tough precinct. I was sort of committed to making sure that the office still ran uh, and that we didn't neglect our routine work that we had. Routine meaning people getting shot every day. Eventually, Resnick needed Neenan back. I think I would have liked to have more time on it. You know, whatever leads still came in, we still worked on. You know, and as busy as that command was, if, you know, if something came in on this case, somebody went out on it. It wasn't me, it wasn't Jerry. When the, no, nobody questioned it. You know, in the middle of everything else that was going on, it was addressed. People wanted this thing solved. The tips kept coming in. False tips from concerned citizens who wanted to settle scores with relatives or neighbors. Crazy ones, like the lady who said Baby Hope recently shared a cab ride with her. The tip that really shook me was about a girl named Aquila Hodrick. The name didn't ring the faintest of bells. A retired detective from the 5-2 called it in. He'd worked on the case almost seven years before. She wasn't right for Baby Hope. Aquila was eight years old when she went missing. The story was this. On August 12, 1985, around 6.30 at night, her mother saw Aquila running down the block. That's it. She never saw her again. Why don't people know this story? Why wasn't the name Aquila Hodrick as familiar to New Yorkers as Aton Pates? Race explains part of it. Aquila was African-American. Being from the Bronx didn't help. Most people think that bad news is the only kind of news that comes out of the Bronx. The only news article I found about Aquila Hodrick was in the New York Press in 2015 by C.J. Sullivan. Aton Pates became famous, if you want to call it that, for a number of reasons. He was a cute little blonde kid, and his father was a professional photographer, so there were all these beautiful pictures of him. The ad campaign was ready to go. Maybe that's why Joe Resnick was so particular about the sketch of Baby Hope. It's awful to think of criminal cases, involving children especially, in marketing terms. But to make people care about a story, you need the conflict and the characters to be familiar and clear. The innocent victim, the steadfast detective, the grief-stricken mother. Baby Hope's mother, where was she? That twist was a second mystery, and it made the story all the more compelling. Still, Aquila Hodrick. Nothing. Pretty little girl, good family. Her mother did everything she could to find her. Never a suspect, not even at the beginning when you have to look at everybody. And the detective, Frankie McDonald, he jumped right in and never let go. He had bloodhounds out that night. Mrs. Hodrick had no complaints about Detective Frankie McDonald. She named her son after him. The case is still open. 
If you know anything about Aquila Hodrick, please, please call Crime Stoppers. There's another report in the case file about how the parents of Marlene Santana came in for a DNA test. No match. I looked up her story, and it's unbelievable. Marlene Santana was a newborn baby taken in a mugging, a stick-up on the street. In Brooklyn, October 85, Francesca Santana gives birth at Brookdale Hospital. When she's looking at her baby through the nursery window, she notices another woman watching, too. The woman says Marlene is the prettiest one there. Francesca says, thank you, I'm taking her home tonight. When Francesca leaves the hospital, the other woman steps up with a gun and says she'll blow the baby's head off unless Francesca gives her up. She takes Marlene, gets into a waiting car, and drives off. Think about Marlene Santana for a minute. Her case is still open, too. She was born October 18, 1985. She had a condition called metatarsus adductus. The front of her feet turned inward. The woman who stole her didn't want to hurt her. There's a better than decent chance that Marlene is out there somewhere, living her life without knowing her real story, her real family, her true name. We'll be right back after the break. Having the right detective for a high-profile investigation is essential, and not just for the dedication and ingenuity they bring. Resnick and Neenan are good on camera, and their quotes and print stories are effective. But Jerry Giorgio was a natural, on camera and off. Yo, Jerry with his cigarettes and his steno pads. The guy was so meticulous with his notes, it's unbelievable. But I learned so much from him. I never saw him get excited. I've seen him do interviews. See, that's where I learned a lot, too. To be a good detective, you have to communicate. I almost hate to admit it, but I would deal with the devil himself uh, to, get into, to get a solution in this case. This is Jerry with Dan Rather on CBS. The investigation began here in New York, in the shadow of the George Washington Bridge. The first shot shows Jerry and Joe Neenan walking through the crime scene with Dan Rather. They're all wearing trench coats. Jerry's is white. When they go to examine the cooler in the evidence warehouse, he has on a navy blue double-breasted blazer, light blue shirt. Even his white latex gloves seem to match his outfit. What's the theory on the sodas there? Coca-Cola's in this box with the body. If they were stopped, what have you got there? Where are you going? Open up the cooler, show the full soda cans on top, say I'm taking it to a friend's house for a party tonight. No fingerprints anywhere. None. As you can see, the rough, the rough surface, again, is not conducive to fingerprints. Jerry's great on air. Your best guess as to what you're dealing with here. A parent, a foster parent, an uncle, uh, who possibly was sexually abusing his child for a period of time. Uh, she, at this particular time, refused him or screamed or hollered and uh, proceeded, he proceeded to kill her. You've had so many cases over the years. Joe Resnick knew that the only way the case could break would be through publicity. He got the story in big venues like People magazine and on the local news as often as he could. Every time we saw the notoriety dwindle to some point, I'd ask to do a press conference and I'd give them some bit of information. And you got to play the media. If nothing is happening, that's the time to do your press conference. 
if something's going on in Washington or another state or upstate New York or even within the city, you got to lay off because you're not going to get the publicity that you want. By the summer of 92, the first anniversary of the murder was approaching. But I don't know if they got much coverage. The riots in Washington Heights were the big story that month. On July 3rd, a man named Jose Kiko Garcia was shot by police officer Michael O'Keefe during a struggle in the lobby of a building on West 162nd Street. Garcia had a loaded gun, and witness claims that he was beaten were later discredited, but the streets exploded. M-80s, bottles and bricks, are being thrown. Several cars have been set on fire. Some of their occupants have been thrown from the car. So far, several demonstrators have been arrested. Two police officers and a civilian have been injured in front of the precinct in Washington Heights. For the record, the grand jury refused to indict O'Keefe, and the Manhattan DA released a lengthy report explaining why. Still, it was a while before things got back to normal in the 3-4, or what passed for normal, and the investigation was losing momentum. So when detectives would come to me with some type of an idea or a suggestion, I said, well, go ahead and do it. Do what it takes to solve this case. A caller remembered driving past someone on the side of the highway carrying a cooler. The caller was hypnotized by a psychologist in Yonkers. Then he was taken to police headquarters for a sketch. The suspect in that picture had long, dark hair. The only tip from that round of publicity sent Jerry Giorgio to a fitness instructor in Brooklyn. His hair was short and blonde. So using the hypnotist, yeah, we tried that. The biggest development in the second year of the investigation was that Joe Neenan transferred to a squad in the Bronx. It was a little slower there, and Joe had a wife and four kids of his own that he hadn't seen enough of. By the beginning of 93, the volume of leads began to dwindle. Resnick had to think of something else to get the case moving again. After two years of, like, trying everything, I remember having this meeting in the office, and we all looked at each other, and we said, like, you know, what's there left to do with this? And somebody said, well, let's, could we bury her? Through the Catholic Church, we were able to get a plot up at St. Raymond Cemetery. The detectives chipped in. They bought the gravestone. St. Elizabeth's Catholic Church is a couple of blocks from the precinct. In 93, Father Rudy Gonzalez had been there for five years as an associate pastor. It was his first assignment after his ordination. Some detectives came to the office to ask if we could do some kind of a service for this, this, uh, this child. And it developed into a very large mass where the precinct plus the community of St. Elizabeth's became the family for Baby Hope. It was an opportunity to do a lot of praying. And this little baby brought us all together. They had a wake the night before at a local funeral home. Jerry Giorgio's wife Kay bought a white dress for Baby Hope to be buried in. Her coffin was white too, small. An honor guard of four cops from the three four in dress uniforms were pallbearers. The church was full, and that church held a thousand people. There was a sense of real community that day with the police. It was a good thing, and Baby Hope brought that about. I gave a short eulogy. Uh, we had an EMS worker who dedicated a song that she had written for Baby Hope. She sang the song, and off to the cemetery we went. It was amazing how many people showed up, even at the cemetery, just to watch this little girl lay to rest. 
A bagpiper played Amazing Grace. Jerry Giorgio told the Times, We are her family. We are burying our baby. The gravestone was black marble. It hadn't been engraved yet. When it was, on top were two angels kneeling in prayer. An NYPD detective shield that said 3-4 Squad was between them. In the middle was the name Baby Hope and the date she was found, July 23, 1991. At the bottom it was inscribed, Because We Care. Maybe Baby Hope could rest now, but Joe Resnick couldn't. There was room on the stone where Baby Hope's real name would go one day. Until then, it was a good space for a wanted poster. It said the identity of this little girl is still unknown. If you have any information, please call. Next time on Breaking the Case, 20 years pass before a crucial tip is called into Crime Stoppers. And they told me that maybe five years before, a person in a laundromat in the Bronx told them that they saw their sister in a bag dead in a refrigerator in the Bronx. Breaking the Case is written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to PIX11 News, The New York Times, John Walsh and America's Most Wanted, CBS News, and WCBS News. Be sure to subscribe to Breaking the Case for a new episode every Tuesday in Season 1. And follow NYPD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and information. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be safe.